0: The old saying goes that two heads are better than one. Well, when you have three heads, it's a lot more fun and a lot more wheels turning, and you just have a really good time. Well, today for the Jersey number 64 Bonus Edition, we have the Newman Brothers. Andrew and Dan join us once again, and they're coming up with 64s in just a moment. This is the Pigskin Daily History Dispatch, a podcast that covers the universities of American football events throughout history on a day-to-day basis. This is your host, Darren Hayes, and we are podcasting from America's North Shore, bringing you the memories of the Gridiron one day at a time. So, in taking the snap from the SportsHistoryNetwork.com and handing off to PigskinDispatch.com, let's go no huddle through today's football history headlines.
1: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com.
0: Hello, my football friends. This is Darren Hayes of PigskinDispatch.com, and welcome once again to the Pigpen. Today we have another bonus edition, our Football by Numbers series, and today's number topic is number 64, the greatest players in NFL history. And once again, we have uh, one of our fan favorites here. We have the Newman brothers, Andrew and Dan, from the Hello Old Sports podcast joining us. Dan and Andrew, welcome once again to the Big Pen. Thank you for having us, Darren. This was, uh, we were talking
2: a little bit before we started recording. This one was, I found this one to be a little bit challenging.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, I, I have to say, I, I felt the same way. Um, it, to me, it there's a couple at the top, and then there's a lot of guys who are interchangeable, I feel like, so... You know, I there might be guys that I have at three or four, and somebody else has it seven or eight. So yeah, it's it's um it, it, there's a lot of wild cards in here, a lot of variability in this one.
0: I thought this was maybe one of the most diverse numbers by position, with having uh, big names in it, and uh, you know, there's not too many of them that have this <laughs> so far, and we're you know two-thirds of the way through the numbers. So I, I thought it was kind of an interesting number. I think it would be a lot of fun. So Let's, let's put our heads together and, and see what we get here. I guess what, where we always start is the uh, Pro Football Hall of Fame, and they are telling us that we have six names uh, the, in the Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton, Ohio, that uh, wore the number 64 during their NFL careers, and that's Randall McDaniel, uh, Y.A. Tittle, George Blanda, Jerry Kramer, Dave Wilcox, and Joe – I'm going to mess up his last name – uh, I think it's Delamilor. Delamilor. Okay, sorry, sorry to that uh, family for uh, me screwing up their name of uh, this Hall of Famer. It's, and I'm, uh, I'm pretty sure he's still alive too. So apologize oh, to him so not just to his family. So he'll probably probably <laughs> come and kick my ass. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, Joe. Sorry, Mister Joe. <laughs> so, um, so I, I don't know if we want to maybe start with with those guys' names, or if you guys want to start in a different direction, or or how you how, where you'd like to proceed.
3: Yeah, I guess what I would say, um, two of those guys, uh, Tittle and Blanda, only wore the number for one year. So for me, I didn't really factor them in, given that. Um, You know, again, as the few of these episodes I've done so far, I know different people interpret this different ways. and, And some may look at the player overall and not really focus on the you know how long you wore the uniform but for me those guys only being one season i wasn't able to put them i just i just couldn't get there with putting them on my list
0: well i mean it's kind of an interesting reason why they both uh only wore it for a year uh because they were both in the uh what was the aafc at that time when they came over into the nfl uh the uh Tittle was with the Colts and uh Blanda was with um I uh, forget who he, who he was with at that time but in 1952 the NFL changed the numbering requirements uh putting quarterbacks to be uh single digits to 19 I believe is what what they allowed you know this past, uh, just recently, they changed, opened that up a little bit. But mm-hmm. that's why when the AAFC, they had their numbers could be anything. So you had uh, you know, some quarterbacks wearing, you know, numbers in the 60s like Tittle. So I, th- I thought that was kind of interesting. And uh, the sort of the merger into the NFL forced them into changing their number.
2: And we talked just the last time Andrew and I did this, we talked about Max Speedy, who was the Hall of Fame, newly minted Hall of Fame receiver who wore number 58. So yeah, it was kind of, uh, Anything went in the AAFC. My thought was, and I don't know if you guys agree, but to me there was a very clear number one here, and that was Randall McDaniel because he was a guy who twelve Pro Bowls, seven All Pro selections. He was, and I remember him. You know, I was, you know, his career started in '88 and went through 2001. I I remember Randall McDaniel as just one of the best offensive guards in the history of the NFL. I'm looking at his stats here from 1990 to 2001. So that's what 12 seasons, mostly in Minnesota, but then also in Tampa Bay. He played 12 seasons in a row where he did not miss a game, started every single game for 12 seasons for his team. And you think about some of those, 90s Vikings teams particularly the 98 team the team that went 15 and 1 with with uh with Cunningham as the quarterback and Randy Moss and Chris Carter and all those guys that that narrowly missed going to the Super Bowl and an offense that high powered he was the offensive line leader of that team a, a clear hall of famer again seven all pro selections so to me Randall McDaniel is the number clear is the clear number one selection at number sixty four.
3: I would agree with that. I think he has to be, and again, probably the nature of offensive linemen that you just you have a tough time sort of quantifying them. So you you know you're not going to go off of numbers because there really are no numbers in terms of statistics. But when you look at just that period of time, he was nine straight times he was a first team All Pro. Um, which means he was considered one of the two best, you know, he was no lower than the second best player at his position year in and year out for basically the entire decade of the nineties. Um, and yeah, sometimes guys get reputations and um, you know, they, they coast, especially on offensive line, they coast off reputation a little bit, but it's probably that, you know, even if you factor in for that, he maintained a very, very high level of play at a, you know, on a team that didn't have a lot of stability offensively outside of Chris Carter for the whole time he was there from 90 to 98. So, uh, you know, it's not like he had the benefit of uh, obviously 98 being a different story, but it's not like he was consistently playing with the same guys. They changed coaches a few times, um, quarterback systems. So, uh, yeah, I think you do ultimately have to, it's hard to go anywhere else but McDaniel.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree with what, both of what you're saying. He's the clear number one of, of this list here. Uh, but it's interesting when you look at, uh, when you're, Dan, you were saying how he started uh, all the games in 12 straight years. That was at the tail end of his career. His injury problems seemed to happen at the beginning of his career uh, where he missed games. I'm sure his rookie season, he probably didn't start the first game. That's why he had 15 out of 16. But then he was only in uh, a few games after that. And it was just interesting. Almost like Benjamin Buttons, he uh, got younger with age. He missed two two games his whole career.
2: Basically, it's from what I'm seeing here, because I see a bunch of sixteens and then one fourteen. And so, in 224 possible games for his team in 14 seasons in the NFL, he started in well, he played all but two, and he started in all but four. And the only thing that kind of makes me a little sad about his career is that he retired at the end of the 0-1 season, and then his, the Bucks, who he had signed with for the end of his career, went on to win the Super Bowl in the 0-2 season. And obviously he didn't retire because of injuries because he had started and played in all 16 games just the season before. So NFL football is a very demanding profession. Don't get me wrong, but... It does kind of make me sad that he couldn't hang on for just one more year because he would have gotten a super bowl ring.
0: That's probably very true.
2: Yeah, no, definitely, absolutely. He's um he's a uh he's an all-time great. I don't know. Did you maybe want to uh should we move on to number 2 here? Yeah, let's let's do that. All right, why who- don't we move on to number 2 here um And I went with another Hall of Famer. I went with Dave Wilcox, the Hall of Fame linebacker from the 49ers of the 60s and 70s. Wow. Was that a wow from you, Andrew?
3: Yeah, I'm surprised there. Um, I I mean, I had Wilcox at number three, but uh, why why don't you talk a little about Wilcox?
2: Wilcox played uh, for the 49ers. He played his whole career with the 49ers from 64 to 74. Couple of All Pro teams, uh, two to be specific, or two first team, two second team, seven Pro Bowls. Obviously, we've talked about this so many times, but when you're talking about anybody but the skill positions in the prior to sort of the early 1980s, there's really not a lot of ways to quantify it. But I think the fact that he's a Hall of Famer, the fact that he made all of those All Pro teams, people tend to forget that those 49er teams of the early 70s, they were really good. They lost to Dallas, I think, three years in a row in the playoffs in the early 70s, and I think at least one and maybe two of them were in the NFC Championship, so you don't really tend to think they about were. the two were to the 49ers, two were to the Cowboys in the NFC Championship.
3: They definitely lost to the Cowboys in seventy-one and seventy-two in the NFC Championship. I want to say they might have lost in the NFC Championship another year too, to somebody else. Really? Um, Yeah, I I'd I'd have to look at it, but or no, excuse me, it must have been seventy and seventy-one if we're talking about the Cowboys.
2: Yep, seventy and seventy-one. Yeah, I think seventy and seventy-one were the only two years. So they lost in the Conference Championship in seventy and seventy-one, unless they lost in sixty-nine to the Vikings, which I don't think they did no they were 4-8-2 so they would have not qualified
3: and who did washington beat in 72
2: yeah, who did washington beat in 72 that's a good question um well the, the niners lost to dallas in the divisional round so then that must okay. have meant that the the so was, washington was, the redskins must have beaten the cowboys in 72 they, they lost
3: to, they lost to dallas 3 years in a row twice in the championship game okay
2: so, some really good forty nine er teams, and he was the defensive leader or one of the defensive leaders of them. So, I went with him, and I think that Andrew's surprise was that I didn't go with him over the next guy. But I, to me, Wilcox just just edged out uh, the guy who I think is going to be number three on our list. <sighs>
3: Yeah, so I, I had Jerry Kramer at number three, um, the guard for the Vince Lombardi Packers. Um, you know, my brother is is much more well versed in the Vince Lombardi Packers than I am. The only the thing I can I can say for, from my own personal standpoint, um, the first team I one of the reasons we're doing this episode is that my whole life from well eight of the 10 years I played football from Pop Warner on through junior high and high school, I wore number 64. I was primarily a center. Um, and the team in my, the the Pop Warner team growing up in my area, we were the East Fishkill Packers, and I was always number 64. So people sometimes would say something about Jerry Kramer. Um, just a little bit of a personal anecdote there. Um,
0: to me, Not a bad I mean, name to be associated with, that's for sure. <laughs>
3: Yeah, they were more just saying you're wearing that jersey. with. They weren't comparing me from a playing standpoint, although I was an offensive lineman. Um, the reason I had him, too, is – and I, I don't even disagree with anything my brother said. I just – you know, he was a five-time All-Pro, uh, first, five-time first-team All-Pro. Um, and I just had to bump him up in the fact that he threw – what is regarded as the most famous block of all time as an offensive lineman. Um, and I, I understand some of these teams get romanticized and some of these moments get romanticized, but that one to me, I think is justifiably in the pantheon. You know, you're talking about the ice bowl, you're talking about the Packers, you're talking about the, you know, the very beginning of the, Cowboys you know long run of the 70s into the 80s um late 60s into the early 80s really Uh, to me that just put it slightly over the edge and that's why I had him at number two but it is it's you know it's certainly fair to put Wilcox ahead of him when you just look at numbers and accomplishments and take any of the romance out of it
2: and the other thing about Kramer, too, that a lot of people don't realize is for a couple of years in the early 60s, he was also their kicker. He well, was the main place kicker for the team in both 1962 and 1963. In fact, in the 1962 NFL championship game against the Giants, Ray Nitschke, the, the, the Packers beat the Giants 16-7 to 7 at Yankee Stadium, and Ray Nitschke was voted the player of the game, You know, the MVP of the game, whatever they called it in those days a lot of people thought that it should have been Kramer because in addition to doing a really good job of blocking against that giant team with the Sam Huffs and the Andy Robostelli's and, you know, Kat Kavich and all those guys, he also kicked three field goals that were represented the winning margin for the Packers over the Giants. They won by nine points. He kicked nine field or kicked three field goals. So there's that too. And I remember, um, You know, years ago, um, my wife, who is very tolerant of my love of sports history, and I was just telling her, I was like, there's this guy who played for the Packers in the 60s, and every year I hope that he gets into the Hall of Fame. And finally, what, two years ago, three years ago, Jerry Kramer, who's still alive, he's one of the last living remnants of those uh, 60s Packers teams, finally got into the hall of fame. And I think the president of the hall of fame said something along the lines of now that Jerry Kramer's is in the hall of fame, my, the volume of mail that I get is going to go down by half because <laughs> half the letters this guy was getting was people urging that have to have Jerry Kramer inducted into the hall of fame. And then the only other thing I would note about Jerry Kramer that his book that he wrote with Dick Shap about the 67 season called instant replay it's one of those things that now is sort of a, it's a little bit of a cliche for a player to do a diary of a season. And there are some truly terrible books out there about, you know, players, right. Either writing autobiographies or doing season, doing season biographies. But Jerry Kramer was really sort of, one of the best and one of the first and his book instant replay about the 67 season which was the year that they won the second super bowl that they it was lombardi's last year it was the year of the ice bowl it was a year of their third nfl championship and that was one of the first biographies and then later on you had jim bouton's ball four and you had ken dryden the montreal canadians goalie did the game and Jerry Kramer was one of the books that really kind of set the tone for that type of season diary book. And it was one of the first sports books that I read as a kid. So Jerry Kramer is a player who's always really had a really special place for me, especially when you consider the fact that I'm not a Packer fan, I'm a giant fan, but something about Jerry Kramer has always really spoken to me. So if Andrew or Darren wants to make an argument that Jerry Kramer could be, should be number two, instead of number three, you're probably not going to get a lot of a uh, pushback from me.
0: Yeah. I personally uh, don't, don't see you. Uh, you, you both have a great argument. I mean, I, I personally, I had him, uh, I had Kramer ahead of uh, Wilcox, but I mean, it's just because I'm looking at sort of like Andrew, did you look at the, the you know, the, one of the greatest blocks in NFL history. Um, the, he had more all pros, but uh, Wilcox had more pro bowls, you know, and uh was definitely an important piece to, to the 49ers defense, and so I, I don't think you go wrong either way. And the beauty of it is, uh, we're taking ten names, and we're only on number two and three. So, you know, if, if you're in second or third, there, it's uh, it's not the Olympics, so we're not going to medals.
2: You don't have to twist my arm that hard. I'll, I'll go Kramer two and uh, Wilcox three. <laughs> go By ahead, voting, two to one, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, it, like I said, my I'm more than willing to make it unanimous.
0: And and it's probably in my case just Kramer's a little bit bigger name than Wilcox in NFL history, and Mm -hmm. basically for that block, you know, and the the championships. So okay, so we
2: Dave Wilcox never wrote a best-selling book.
0: That that's true. That's true. So okay, so we got uh, three names taken on our top ten already. Uh, What direction would you guys like to go next?
3: Before we do that, I want to say now it gets really wide open in terms of subjectivity. I feel like. you know the the top three mcdaniel's pretty clear one and then kramer and wilcox you could debate the order but now uh, it wouldn't shock me if you know the responses next are are sort of completely different from what you know the other two of us might have written down so
2: well i'd love to i don't andrew i don't know uh, maybe maybe we could hear andrews because i've suggested the next couple who do you have for number four
3: i have ed newman as number four also an offensive lineman um pro bowler 1981 to 1984 um ap all pro first team 1984 um is now actually or was after football became a uh, a judge post-retirement which certainly uh makes him stand out from uh from a lot of post you know it's hardly golfing or uh doing advertisement selling insurance or whatever but um just by the you know, the nature of the, the longevity of his career. He played for 12 years, was a uh, pro bowler actually at the end of his career in the early 80s. I, uh, I went with him.
2: That was not who I had. He was actually my number five. I did in my research, and I'm, I'm hoping this is true because I think this is – no, no, I'm kind of seeing – I saw it on Wikipedia and then I'm seeing it verified. Ed Newman is a judge, and at least for a time, his bailiff – was tony nathan who was his teammate and was a running back on the dolphins around the same time so that's got to be funny you block for a guy and then he ends up working for you as your bailiff when you're a a sitting judge so that is that is interesting to me too i thought that was just an interesting little tidbit
0: yeah it's really it really is you hear uh, he was the the big guy that was uh, you know protecting uh, Nathan and he comes the roles are sort of re- reversed when they get into their uh judicial career.
2: <laughs> so I had Newman as number 5.
3: By the way, no relation, spelled differently, but let's, you know, <laughs> let's just make it
2: happen. My number 4 was Hacksaw Reynolds who is not in the Hall of Fame, but I I don't know, probably should be. He was a linebacker for the San Francisco 49ers on the first couple of teams that won the Super Bowl in the early 1980s, 81 to 84. So he was on both the 16 and the 19 Super Bowl teams. He actually played most of his career with the with the Rams and got into a Super Bowl with the Rams in 79 against Pittsburgh. But then Andrew and I talked about in um when we did our in memoriam episode at the end of last year about how uh, Fred Dean um, was one of the guys that, when the Forty ers brought him in in 1981, it was sort of a symbol that they were willing to get serious about not just about offense but about defense, and that was what kind of pushed them over the edge to win the, you know, to win that first Super Bowl against Cincinnati in '81. Hacksaw Reynolds was another one of those guys, so. I don't know exactly why he's not in the hall of fame, two pro bowls two all pros, couple of super bowls. There are guys with he played in the NFL God from 70 to 84. So that's quite a, that's quite a resume. So there are definitely guys with less impressive resumes who are in, in the pro football hall of fame. So I don't know why Haxo Reynolds hasn't made it in, but he was my number four. And then I had Newman at number five.
0: I think again, uh, you can't go wrong either way because I, I had both of them sort of in that mid range also. And uh, I mean, I guess as long as we're, we're into this, uh, we're recording this on uh, the 14th of July uh, talking about Reynolds. I don't know if you noticed if uh, pro football reference, um, John Turney of pro football journal, and uh, I believe uh, another guy, Nick Webster, put their stats in for the sacks uh, Prior to 1982, when the NFL made an official stat on Pro Football Reference. So I don't know if you're seeing that on Reynolds now, you can see all his years of sacks. And it's sort of uh, had some uh, big hubbub the last couple of days. They just did it on July 12th on Monday. Oh, wow. uh, I had not seen that. So there's quite a bit of hubbub because it's uh, changed some of the uh, career stats records of some, some great players, you know, and Hacksaw is definitely one of them. He didn't have a tremendous amount of sacks. I'm not saying that, but you can now have the pro football reference, see the sacks on those defenders goes from 1961 up to 1981. They brought in.
2: That's really neat. I had not seen that. That's that's really cool. It's always cool when these sports sort of rediscover or are able to find a way to reanalyze new stats. It gives you gives you another metric for comparison. The other thing I thought that was interesting about Hacksaw Reynolds was that I always thought that was just a nickname, you know, he you know, a guy, you know, he hit like a hacksaw or whatever, but apparently he actually got the nickname because when he was in college his School, and I'll, I'll look up here and see what, what college it was that he went to. I think it was one of the southern schools. He went to Tennessee. And after a big loss, he um, he cut an abandoned car on campus with a hacksaw after his team <laughs> had lost a 38-0 road loss to Ole Miss. He said, I came back to school, and I was very upset, and I had to do something to relieve my frustration. So then there was this abandoned car on campus, so he – chewed through 13 hacksaw blades and cut this uh, this Chevrolet into pieces. So kind of a crazy guy. Bill Walsh said that Reynolds used to show up at team meals the day of a game in his full uniform, including shoulder pads and eye black. I guess he took his helmet off to eat. But, you know, just an intense, crazy guy. And I think when you think of the 49ers of the 80s, you think of sort of the you know, Montana and Rice and Dwight Clark and even Ronnie Lott, who's sort of a, you know, a very athletic kind of guy, you know, elegant. And it's kind of neat to think that at least in the early days, they had a guy who once hacked a car to pieces with 13 hacksaw blades. <laughs> so I, I like get that. Get 13 hacksaw
3: blades. <laughs> <laughs>
0: I don't know. Th- there's somewhere a hardware store in Tennessee was uh, vacated of a lot of their hacksaw blades. I think.
3: Wouldn't <laughs> That's that interesting
0: story. arms? <laughs> Probably
2: yeah. not in the 1970s.
3: I guess in Tennessee, maybe it's still.
0: So <laughs> That's anyway, <a> great story. <laughs> he was my four. Newman was my five. How about you, Andrew? Who, who did you have him in that same order?
3: I had Reynolds actually a couple of slots lower. Um, The guy I had number five was Ken Gray, uh, all pro with the Cardinals. And I've sort of factored in, he was on, he had some real success in terms of all pro selections and, and acknowledgements like that while playing for some pretty poor Cardinals teams in the sixties. He was an all pro from 63 to 69. Most of those years were second team, but also 64 and 69. He was a first team all pro. Um, So that, to me sort of, you know, factoring in, okay, this was a guy who I wasn't real familiar with offensive lineman on some bad teams in the sixties, but um, just the sort of consistency of year in and year out being recognized as either a first or second team All pro for basically the last, you know, two thirds of the sixties. That's why I had him uh, maybe a little higher than other people would have.
2: Gray was my number six. So we're, okay. You know, we're on the same general wavelength.
0: Yeah, I, I sort of had him uh, marked as sort of a sleeper. I wasn't sure if you guys were going to bring him up or not, but those you know, six Pro Bowls and two All-Pros, that definitely jumps right off the page at you. It's, uh, makes him you know, one of the better uh, number 64s in history.
2: Here's an interesting sure. tidbit about Ken Gray that I noticed, and I did not know not much about this guy, if anything, before I did a little research. It's also funny, he was actually the last um, player cut by the Green Bay Packers in 1958, which was the year before Lombardi came. So just imagine if they had managed to keep him for that year and then Lombardi had held on to him in 59, you know, Fuzzy Thurston was a damn good guard, but I'd imagine, I don't think he was a six time all pro. So Ken Gray, um, probably better. So, I'm sorry, Gray was actually a seven time all pro. So just imagine how much even better potentially the Packers sweep would have benefited been Jerry Kramer, and Ken Gray, as opposed to Jerry Kramer and Fuzzy Thurston. And the other thing that I think is interesting is that Gray started his career with the Cardinals in 58 when they were still in Chicago. And then his last year he played with the Houston Oilers in the first year of the merged NFL. So 1970, I would have to imagine, and maybe we need to consult with uh, Joe Ziemba on this, who's our residential Chicago Cardinals expert, but I would bet there are very few players who played for both the Chicago Cardinals and the Houston Oilers. So <laughs> just a, just something I came up with. So yeah, I, I had gray too. I had gray at number six. So.
0: All right. Uh, yeah. I think that definitely another uh, great pick there. I I had somebody else sort of mixed in there between them. And that was our, our other hall of famer that, uh, you know, uh, was a, uh, The one I messed his name up, and I'll probably do it again. Joe Delamuler, I had him in there uh, with the, you know, playing for for Buffalo and um, the other team he was with uh, Cleveland. You know, having those those All Pro seasons, the uh, Pro Bowl seasons, and I know he didn't. He wore sixty eight for majority that with Buffalo. That was, but he was still a significant player even when he was with the Browns. I can remember him him playing, and uh, his name was called quite a bit even with the Browns. Was a great uh, guard for them.
3: I had him at 6 as well. Um again I, I not not knocked him down but I factored in that yeah the only time he wore number 64 was those 5 years he was with Cleveland. But in those 5 years he was still a two-time all-pro. So, you know, if he was if we were evaluating the whole career, he might be a couple of slots higher, number 4, maybe
2: yeah I had Delamuler Seven. So yeah, you're right. Best years with the Bills with another number, but he did make a pro bowl with the Browns. He was part of that whole cardiac kids team. I think in, in 80 was his, I think 80 was his first year with the Browns. I could be wrong. I could be off by a year on that, but so, yeah, I think Andrew and I kind of look at this similarly in that we heavily discount guys for the time that they weren't wearing the number, but Mm -hmm. I think he did enough with 64 to where you can still consider him a part of, the list
0: yeah okay yeah i agree i agree with that so i think think we've covered what
3: seven now is that i think we just like the three through seven or four through seven was like the newman gray delamular uh and hacksaw reynolds in some order um but we'll be we we sort of closed out the first three and then that was like the four through seven um correct uh, tier
0: yeah yeah, we have, we have set, I have 7 marked down for our list right now. Yep. Um uh, do, do either of you guys want to list your number 8? Uh my mine's sort of a a homer number, but uh that's that's Jeff Hardings um who uh you know played played a Super Bowl champion with the Steelers uh uh, started off with the um Detroit Lions and came over to Pittsburgh in two thousand and one uh through the two thousand and six season so he he got that super Bowl in uh uh when Coward Super Bowl that he, they won that they beat the Seahawks in uh, he was the center for the Steelers and you know a great career he was a, a guard with the um uh detroit lions came over to, switched over to center and just did a phenomenal job for them uh, you know two pro bowls, one all pro. I, I had him on the list, but like I said, I'm a homer. Well, you know, I had you too, too, go ahead, Andrew.
3: I was going to say you weren't too much of a homer here because I had him on the list and I had him at number eight as well. So um, if you're a homer, then I'm for some reason being a homer about this, this, you know, Steelers team as well. So
0: but welcome to Steeler nation, Andrew. And I had him <laughs> nine. So we, <we're, laughs> we,
2: we had him in, I think we all kind of saw the merits of uh, Mr. Hastings.
3: Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and then, you know, you look at
2: Hardings, I'm sorry.
3: Yeah. Consistency. Um, you know, his years with, the, with Detroit, 10 games started, 16, 13, 16, 16. Then he goes to Pittsburgh, switches positions and 16, 11, 16, 16, 16, and then 14 in 2006, 34 years old. So not like basically except for that one year he was playing almost every game.
2: And I respect a guy who can play two different offensive line positions, especially when one of them is center, because that's just a whole different other skill set that you need to have. So between that and the Super Bowl title, that was enough for me to include him on the list.
3: Yep, absolutely.
2: Okay, well, Dan. Well...
3: You... Oh, sorry, God, I was going to say Dan had him nine, so I was wondering who Dan had at ace.
2: I had a guy by the name of Tom Rafferty who was a guard for the Dallas Cowboys football reference, who I think we all have used to some extent in preparation for this kind of lists guys by their, I think they call it their player value and you can sort that out by number. I think in some ways it's probably, It's an attempt probably to be analogous to what war is in baseball. Now, the thing about Rafferty is, and he was ranked pretty high in the number 64 on pro football reference. The guy played, he never won, he won one Super Bowl. He never made a Pro Bowl, never made an all-star team or an all-pro team. Pretty consistent, started 16 or 15 games almost every single year, won a Super Bowl with the Cowboys in the 77 season. Another interesting thing about him is he he started his career in 1976 at sort of the – still very much in the middle of the Landry dynasty. They would make the Super Bowl in 78. They would make the Super Bowl in 77 – I'm sorry, make the Super Bowl in 77 and 78. And he continued his career all the way through the 80s to the Randy White years and actually didn't retire till after 1989, which was that Jimmy Johnson 1-15 team. So a guy who kind of spanned the eras of Dallas Cowboys history. And so even though he never, you know, he's not going to be a Hall of Famer, never even made a Pro Bowl, I thought he was worth having on the list of 10.
3: Yeah. If you can be a starting offensive lineman on a team of that caliber for that long. And I know in the eighties, they started to go downhill, but really until 85, 86, they were still a, a strong contender almost every year. Um, my favorite stat here is I'm looking at this and I'd like to know how this happened, but uh, you know, since he was a an interior lineman, there's not a whole lot to go off of stats, but in 1981, he had one fumble recovered for negative 30 yards.
0: I see so that. Too. I'd,
3: I'd, I'd like to know what happened there, um, but uh, I'm guessing the negative 30 part wasn't really his fault. I'm guessing he's the one who recovered it after that, but um despite his negative 24 career rushing yards, um I still, you know, again, not a player who at any point was top of the league in his position. But if you're doing something for that long and that consistently, he was obviously one of Landry's guys for a long time because, you know, they never upgraded or tried to replace him with somebody who was, you know, of, of a higher caliber. So it seems like he was, you know, very much like his, a, a rock in that uh, middle of the Cowboys offense.
2: Absolutely.
0: Yeah, I, I have no problem. You know, he was definitely – um a great player for them. And if you can be a lineman for Landry, like you guys said, you gotta, you gotta be a pretty good athlete. And uh, the way they they were like a machine, you know, Yeah, I don't know if you guys remember seeing those Landry teams of the seventies, but they had that sort of that, that cadence of their um, getting ready for snap, you know, they're down set. They, they sort of, all would go up in unison and then back back down to their knees and down and it. it was really very uniform and very uh, mechanical looking and very odd for the NFL. Even even if they did it today, it would be kind of an odd thing, you know. Absolutely, absolutely played
3: in eighteen career playoff games too, so pretty impressive, especially back then when you know you generally were playing less playoff games if you won your division, especially.
2: Yeah, you tend to forget that those Cowboy teams of the 80s, even though they never made a Super Bowl, you tend to forget, especially in the early 80s, that they were perennial playoff teams and NFC Championship yeah. a couple times and all that stuff.
3: Yeah, I actually saw a clip a little uh, the other day that somebody had posted one of the Giants accounts I follow. And there was a game in 86 where, you know, everybody talks about the Giants in Washington that year, but there was a game where they went in to play the Giants, and they were both, I think, 6-2. and two. And the Giants beat them, and then the Cowboys lost, like, you know, six out of their last seven or whatever, and that was kind of the end of it. Obviously, then things got bad in 87. Jerry Jones buys the team, 88, you know, and then 89, they're on to their new regime. So, uh, yeah, that's you're right. I mean, you know, they made the playoffs in 81, was obviously the year with the catch. Then in 82, they get all the way to the NFC Championship game. 83, they make the playoffs. 85, they make the playoffs. So, yeah, they were a perennial contender every year, you know, in that division up until the mid-'80s and then dipped for about three years and then won three Super Bowls in four years. So,
0: You know, I sort of lost track of, of Dallas when they sort of, uh, they, I mean, they did have a decline in the eighties and I sort of lost track and I didn't, they weren't really on television, uh, at least in our market very often, but you know, for Danny white to be his quarterback, as long as he was, I didn't realize he went mostly the majority through the eighties as being the starting quarterback for the Cowboys. I still think him, he was the punter. Like when Staubach was still there in the late seventies in a mm-hmm. backup quarterback and you know, but, uh. He, he was a lot more talent, had a lot more career yards uh, uh, than, I, than I thought he did. But he was a big part of that, that Cowboys uh, squad, too, in the 80s. Not, that doesn't have anything to do with number 64s, but uh, just an interesting tidbit, I thought. In there. Hey, we're <laughs> in the Big Pen, anything football history, right? That's right. That's right. Okay, uh, so I guess it comes down to this, that. That makes nine. Uh, who do we have as a number 10? Dan,
3: who did you have at number 10?
2: Okay, so I'm going to preface this with the fact that I don't love this selection for, for, for a couple of reasons, but I, it, it got kind of thin for me. Part of me wanted to go with Jim Burt, the Giants tackle from the 80s, but I just couldn't get there. My number 10 is Richie Incognito. I got incog- I'm sorry, you got there?
3: I got there. Go ahead.
2: My number 10 is Richie Incognito four Pro Bowls, still active, you Ooh. know, again, the the Pickens got a little slim towards the end and, huh? you know, obviously a guy who had some issues as far as how he treated his teammates actually missed a year in 2014 as part of the fallout from all that. But hey, the, four Pro Bowls is four Pro Bowls and there wasn't anybody else with four Pro Bowls at this point. So, I kind of somewhat reluctantly went with Richie incognito.
3: Yeah. And he's had a good career that has continued. Um, He would be the, probably the correct pick here. Um, You know, I, and it, I think it has come out that he he did get scapegoated. he, He got scapegoated. He wasn't totally innocent in that whole thing, but there was a little bit of a rush to judgment on that. Um, not to you know you can't really if you're going to get into that you got to get into it so let's not get into it but um you know (laughs) beyond that just a really good career sort of longevity go into his man go into his and i i always like a guy who's played for a bunch of teams and manages to keep the number i always give them a bump on these (laughs) and i'm like yeah he played on six different teams and he was in the same number the whole time um so yeah that that's that's certainly a much more defensible, you know, choice and probably was, is objectively, you know, the guy who would be number 10.
2: And Um, you don't, you don't hold Jim Burt's cheap hit against Jeff Hostetler in the 90 NFC title game against him.
3: Here's the thing. And and I'll, (laughs) I'll talk about Jim Burt for a minute here. Here's the one thing I don't want to hear with that. That was, that was a, that was dirty and it was dirty then too. There there tends to be a um there tends to be a sort of revisionist history that like oh nobody ever thought anything was dirty in football prior to 15 years ago. And it's like no, there were hits that people were like that's dirty. Like and and that hit on Hastler was dirty. You know, it was also pretty dirty the hit that those same two teams had 4 years earlier when he knock Joe Montana out of that playoff game in 1986. Now that didn't flip the game because the giants were winning that game huge anyway, but that's a pretty dirty hit too. When you, when you look at that. Um,
2: so we're basically between a guy who was a total jerk off the field and a guy who was a total <laughs> jerk on the field.
3: Well, hang on. Well, while we're well, talking about Jim Burt so just, you know, for anybody who doesn't Jim Burt was a giant, he was very symbolic of those giant teams of the eighties, um, he obviously was it was on a defense with much more athletic players he was the nose tackle in the three four um you know he had guys like leonard marshall and and george martin and then behind him was that all world linebacking crew with lawrence taylor and carl banks and harry carson and pepper johnson um but you know he was a good player made his only pro bowl in 86 and then I had never known the exact details of him leaving for San Francisco, which was basically that Parcells decided he was done with him, so just announced that Jim Burt had retires. (laughs) (laughs) And and Jim Burt was like, I didn't retire. And Jim Burt was like, okay, I'm going to go sign with maybe not their biggest rivals, but their biggest competition in the NFC at that point. And one, at least one more, he was on the team in 89. I don't know if he was on the team in 88. Was he still with the Giants in 88?
2: Yes, his last okay. year was he, – he, yeah, he only – I think he got to – yeah, he got. He only won the one title with the 49ers, and that was in 89.
3: So he won two Super Bowls, just like, you know, had he stayed a Giant, they won the two Super Bowls. And while we're on the subject of number 64, we have to point out, and this is another thing that growing up people would talk – my father specifically would talk to me about all the time wearing number 64. Jim Burt, if you ever see a picture of him on those 80s Giants teams, I'm assuming he did it with the 49ers too. So he wouldn't get held. He would get the smallest jersey possible. And then also, that was back when the jerseys had like all the holes in them. And he would essentially just sew or, you know, use like whatever he would use to to make the jersey even tighter, where it was basically skin tight. And you would see the number six on one side would basically be under his armpits. And the number four would be like over where the six should be because the jersey was just basically plastered onto his skin. Um, So I feel like just given the subject of what we're talking about here, that needs that. That was my justification. I was like, well, we're talking about number 64 and he wore number 64 in a very famous fashion, literally.
2: And if you do an, an Google image search for Jim Burt, uh, you can see a couple of those pictures um, of him with the Jersey on so tight. And the funny thing is actually when you do a Google image search of, search of Jim Burt, there's a, the second <laughs> thing is an article of Jim Burt talking about Richie incognito.
3: <laughs> so it's <laughs> like,
2: I don't know if they knew that in July of 2021, they would be un, in, in strict competition for the last slot on Darren's podcast. But <laughs> it's just well, also, funny how just, life
3: works. Jim Burt is from the Buffalo area so i 'm guessing that 's why that was one of the things that happened and Jim Bird also was one of the guys who, when the Giants won in '86 was had his kid on his shoulders, which is one of the enduring images of that um, you know he had like his son, and he was kind of raising his son 's hands on his shoulders. None of these are reasons that this guy should be on this list, but i 'm again i 'm being a homer so <laughs>
0: But I, I'm starting to see why you guys had – when you came first came on, you said you had a lot of problems with this uh, with this number. And I think I know why I didn't, because I brought in with my ninth and 10, Tittle and Blanda. So I, okay. I eliminated the problem because I had uh, some Hall of Famers that uh, had. But I understand, you know, with them only having one year each of uh, wearing number 64. But
3: <laughs> can yeah. I – sorry.
0: Can I mention a couple other
2: guys real quick, Darren? Yeah, please. <laughs> there was a guy named Bud McFadden who was a defensive tackle for the Rams and then later for the Broncos in the AFL. He made five Pro Bowls between the NFL in the 50s and the AFL in the 60s. What I found interesting about Bud McFadden is – he was a Pro Bowl and I could not find any more information about this. I didn't look super hard, but I was very curious. He played he got into the NFL in nineteen fifty it looks like nineteen fifty-three with the Rams. And he played until nineteen fifty six with the Rams, made the Pro Bowl in fifty five and fifty-six, and then was out of football for three years before signing with the Broncos for the first season of the AFL. And then he was an all pro in 60, 61 and 62. So it obviously wasn't a talent thing because the guy was either a pro bowler or an all pro in the couple years before he was out of football. And then in the few years after he came back, I don't know, maybe he was playing in, I don't know if there was a Canadian league in those days or what, but this was a guy who missed three pro seasons. And then when the AFL came along, was able to pick up with Denver and go right back to being named an all pro. So, again not a guy i'd ever heard of this bud mcfadden but somebody else who i thought was interesting and then the other guy i had was a guy by the name of jim ray smith who was an offensive lineman mostly a guard and he was a five-time pro bowler three-time all pro and he won a title in 57 with the cleveland browns with the great jim brown teams and then how long was he on the Browns? He he left the Browns before they won their second title in 64 with Jim Brown. But another guy who was just, you know, part of that great Cleveland Browns, Jim Brown offense in the 1960s. And he was an all pro a bunch of times. So I could be persuaded to put either one of those guys on there, but I could also be persuaded to put Jim Bird on there. So I'm kind of, you know, I'm, or, you know, my own guy incognito. So I'm, I'm good with kind of anybody for that 10th spot. (laughs)
0: <laughs> Andrew, what do you think?
2: I
3: mean, I guess I would have to say, well, I wouldn't have put Jim Burt there if I didn't think Jim Burt would should be on there. But I think I, Incognito is probably the more even-handed choice as number ten.
2: You know, I'm going to make a last-minute pitch for this Bug McF- Bud McFadden, just because he's got such an interesting story, and he was an All-Pro and a Pro Bowler, even more than Incognito. So maybe, maybe that's sort of my my dark horse, uh, you know, third-party candidate for this is Bud McFadden.
0: Yeah. You know, it really wasn't that uncommon for especially when the AFL kicked in because even Blanda, he was he retired uh from the Bears uh nineteen fifty-eight. It was out of football for a whole year when the AFL came in they came knocking on his door and promised him he'd be the starting quarterback. That was his whole problem with uh, George Hallis is mm-hmm. Hallis wanted him to kick and he planned to to play quarterback. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so there was like some, you know, some stories of just some treacherous years of uh, Blanda was just, you know, yeah, beside himself not being able to be that he was considered the kicker by by Hallis, but uh, you know, he retired and a year later the AFL came knocking on his door and maybe that's a similar story for uh, McFadden.
2: Yeah. And Blanda only played another 20 years or so. Right. Had. So Yeah, no, I am I'm, I'm intrigued by this guy, especially because it was three whole seasons that he missed. So yeah, I don't know. That that'd be maybe I don't know. And
3: what years did he miss?
2: Fifty-seven, fifty-eight,
3: and fifty-nine. So it was too late for Korea, so it obviously wasn't that.
2: Yeah, it wasn't military service. I just again I'll I'm not gonna pretend I, I did a ton of research about this, but it's uh Bud McFadden, M C F A D I N, if anybody wants to do any more research so i don't know maybe maybe i would sort of suggest him over incognito or bert
0: yeah i I don't have a problem with i I (laughs) would say probably i'd I'd take mcfadden over over either one of those um you know not that you know richie incognito i just think the the baggage that he brings in Mm -hmm. um i don't know it just uh sort of overshadows his i don't know if it makes him one of the most substantial players you know I have an answer, and I
2: think this makes me more want to go with Bud McFadden. He played in the Pro Bowl in 1955 and 56, but opted for an early retirement after he was accidentally shot in the stomach during the 1956 (laughs) offseason. I thought you were
3: going to say during the 1956 Pro Bowl.
2: (laughs) They played He a wouldn't lot come of out more. of the game. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So yeah, I I don't know, my personal opinion is that, that might push him over the edge.
3: Yeah, I I agree with that. Um I did pull and I'm not no, I'm no longer advocating for him, but this is too in my wheelhouse to not mention. I have Jim Burt's Wikipedia page up and I mentioned he went to he's from the Buffalo area. The last line of his Wikipedia says he played high school football in Orchard Park, New York, a suburb of Buffalo and the home of the Bills. His teammates at Orchard Park High School included Craig Wolfley, later an offensive lineman with the Pittsburgh Steelers, and Larry Fole, PFOHL, who found fame as professional wrestler Lex Luger. So that was quite quite the team. (laughs) So, again, not a good enough reason to put him on the list. But just to add color, um, you know, to that, what, what a team! <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, I know. I know Wolfley very, very. I mean, I don't know him personally, but just I hear him on the radio. He has a talk show for the Steelers every day during the season, and he's he's entertaining as all get out. But uh, oh, okay. So if he's associated with him, that makes me feel a little bit better about him. But uh, <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. But I, I think McFadden is uh, who I would pick for that tenth spot. I talk think we're in
3: agreement.
0: Him. Okay, well I think we did it once again guys. Uh and I, I thank you for uh doing that especially with my technical difficulties I had in the middle here and I apologize for those. What what do we have coming up uh on Hello Old Sports? So I you know, I know we just had you on about a week ago, but uh what do you, what do you have cooking? We posted our episode a couple
2: of days ago about the Baltimore Orioles team of the 1890s, the sort of first dynasty in baseball and really in American sports history. I am actively working on editing an episode on the baseball all-star game. As we record this, the all-star game was last night and I'd really like to get that out by the end of the week to sort of roughly coincide with the all-star yeah. game. And then, The one after that that we have in the can is from uh, It's sort of a recap of the 1941 sports season. Those are the ones that we've recorded so far. The next one that we're going to do is a little bit more modern, and it's about we're going to kind of make a list, and we're not going to rank them necessarily, but we're just going to kind of a list of like 40 to 50 moments if you were just going to tell the story of sports in the 21st century, so from 2000 on what would you talk about? I think I might've mentioned this in the last episode that we did with you too. So if anybody has any suggestions or ideas, shoot us an email, hello old sports at gmail.com. We're just kind of trying to put together a list of, you know, obviously mostly baseball, basketball, football, hockey, but you know, anything Olympics, NASCAR, you know, even if it's stuff that we don't really talk about all that much, golf, tennis, men's and women's, you know, just all that stuff kind of, you know, just if you're going to try and put together like a highlight reel of the the 40 to 50 moments to tell the story of sports in the 21st century so that's what we have coming up next i don't know um after that i i, I don't have our schedule in front of us angie do you have anything that was sort of else that might be something you want to look take a look out for
3: no i mean i'm sure we kind of go with not strictly but we kind of go with the seasons. so as we start getting towards september i'm sure football episodes maybe come more and more uh a heavier part of the rotation than they've been the last few months. I mean, we've still done some, but, um, you know, we, we, we have some, some episodes we're, we're going to talk about. Um, we have one on the, uh, the year, the 12 month period, where all four Philadelphia professional sports teams, the Eagles, the Flyers, the Phillies, and the Sixers all played in the championship, although three of them lost, but really hasn't been done,
1: you know, ever any other
3: time since then, you know, so, so we got we had a bunch of different ones talk, uh, coming up but that that's kind of the the one that i'm i'm sort of most looking forward to
0: no sound, definitely sounds very interesting and uh I'm, I'm sure the listeners and myself i will be definitely uh, getting those episodes loaded up and uh listen to so can't wait to hear them uh, do you guys want to give a shout out like your social media yeah you, know, we, you just give your email
3: uh he gave the email we also have a facebook page which is just hello old sports um you can tell it's us there's a it's a gray logo with blue writing and kind of old timey baseball scripts we decided that's a better representation of the brand than our faces um which have been <laughs> described as troubling um and you know we're brothers so if one of us isn't all that good looking sadly the other one's not going to be all that good looking either <laughs> so uh yeah um you know facebook and then obviously through the the sports history network website and the email my brother mentioned um really the best way to get in touch with us we've gotten some feedback from some people on uh, you know, episode suggestions and things like that. And we're always anxious to hear that. So please, uh, do you have any thoughts, we're uh, certainly wide open to any ideas that will give us some some content.
0: All right. Well, uh, once again, I I thank you guys and uh, can't wait to hear your programs. And uh, hopefully we get you on here again real soon.
2: we're doing doing 89 in a couple of weeks i think that's right that's
0: right i forgot about that that's right the the one that warren uh, rogan's pissed off about i forgot yes (laughs) i forget about that well thanks for having us darren Peeking up at the clock the time's running down we're going to go into victory formation take a knee and let this baby run out thanks for joining us we'll see you back tomorrow for the next podcast A special thanks to the talents of Mike and Gene Monroe, as well as Jason Neff for letting us use their music during our podcast.
1: This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, sports history fan. This is Arnie Chapman, aka the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network.